Howdy, and welcome to another BP Movie Journal, the show we do where we talk about the stuff we've seen since the last time we did one of these. I'm David. I'm Tyler. Tyler! What? Of all people. Hello. Welcome back. It's been a long time. Indeed it has. Um, but uh, we'll do more catching up on the main episode. We Now we have to catch up on movies. Cause, Indeed. You know, Scott filled in ably, mostly ably for you while you were gone, um, but we don't do movie journals yeah. unless it's the two of us. Uh, so we've got, you know, a lot of stuff to catch up on. Luckily for me, uh, for this list, um, we won't be talking about everything I've seen because a big right. chunk of what I've seen recently right. is at AFI Fest, which we'll be talking about in the main episode. And then some stuff I had to watch for work that I can't really talk about, um, or shouldn't probably talk about on the podcast. Um, so I'm just going to jump right into it. Although, okay. uh, I'm not, cause this, this is a movie that, uh, requires, I would say a disclaimer given the tenor of things lately um i saw woody allen's new movie Wonder uh-huh. yes um and i've never felt so guilty about liking a movie not i don't feel guilty for liking the movie like i, I yeah. can't really what i'm saying is in my role as a critic sure do you know what i mean like i feel like oh well, it's my duty to tell people that this movie is good or that yeah. i think this movie is good yeah but there's a lot of moral stuff caught up in that of like well, that's nothing new with him he's like the yeah, he's yeah. the old standby yeah um yeah but it is it's you know it's it's just one it's one more thing we we don't need right now so what i've uh and i mentioned this actually on the podcast uh with, with scott and and susan my thing now is and it's in my review is um uh if you're going to see wonder wheel which i think you should okay make an in-kind donation to the rape abuse incest national network or, okay. or, or some other, you know, sort of uh, charity that helps people who have been harmed. So it's by a network it. of rapists and <laughs> yes, abusers yeah. and that sort of thing. Got it. Yeah. Got it. So that, that's, that, that's my, um, that, that's what I say to people. I think that's actually kind of, uh, a pretty good idea overall. Overall, I was talking about this on, on Twitter and, uh, Aaron, Aaron Newworth was like, um, there should be some sort of website that like automatically, like you can say, like I'm, you know, I'm watching, you can go all the way back. I'm watching a Miramax. I'm watching train spotting, mm-hmm. whatever it's something that Harvey Weinstein is a producer on. And like it automatically is connected to your bank account and donates, you know, some, you know, $3 or whatever per viewing to the charities. Like that's the, a neat idea. Someone should come up with that kind of website. Are you watching any good movie from the nineties? I've got bad news for you. <laughs> yeah. Um, and maybe it'll keep people from, you know, uh, subjecting themselves to the human stain or something like that. Um, do you remember that movie? I do remember that movie. I remember a long monologue delivered to like a, ro- a raven or something like that. I don't that, that constantly looked like it was laughing. And my friends and I just couldn't help but burst out laughing. It's like poor Nicole Kidman is just pouring her guts out to this goofy looking raven. Uh, yeah. I think that's the one I'm thinking of. Yeah. Uh, that sounds like that movie. It's yeah. that, also if that movie were released now, it would cause a whole other uproar because yes. Anthony Hopkins character is supposed to be mixed race. Yes. And it's I, like and a huge plot point. Wentworth Miller plays him as a younger uh, man. Yeah. Yes. Uh, is he uh, mixed race? I don't, I feel uncomfortable I believe asking Wentworth that question. Miller is, I okay. think. Okay. I think so. Uh, but I could be wrong. Anyway, let's get back to wonder wheel. Indeed. Um, it's, uh, you know, it's, uh, I don't know if you know the, the story it's, it's set, set in Coney Island, 1950s. Um, Kate Winslet and, uh, Jim Belushi play a, hmm. uh, married couple. Um, and, uh, the local lifeguard at the Coney Island beach is played by Justin Timberlake. And then Jim Belushi's 
daughter from his previous marriage is played by um, Juno Temple. Okay. And so she, and they've, they're estranged. She shows up because she had a, uh, she had married a, uh, essentially a gangster mm-hmm. and then she's squealed and now her husband and her husband's cohorts want to kill her. Oh, so boy. she decided, well, my husband knows that my father hates me, so he probably won't come looking for me here. No. So she decides to come hi- hide out at her dad's place and that sort of kicks off the plot. All right. Um, I kind of like when Woody Allen deals with gangsters. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, it's not a, it's not a major in, in terms of like screen time, there's not right. that much of that. You will like who the gangsters are played by. Uh, of course I will. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if I should say or if it's a... Hey, go play. ahead. Uh, the, there are two gangsters. They're played by Tony Sirico and Steve Sharippa. Oh, well, there you go. That's perfect. <laughs> That's great. It's Bobby Bacala and Polly Walnuts. Yeah. Uh, you know, skulking around the Coney Island looking to <laughs> plug this dame. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, but uh, really what... The, the story is, I mean, the story is what it is, but what I like about it, uh, the, the people who can't, we, we've talked before and like our friend Amy Nicholson wrote a whole thing about like people who can't sit through old movies without laughing at the, right. the quote unquote corny parts. Those people are going to have a tough time with Wonder Wheel. Mm. It is a very earnest, very melodramatic movie. And trying to be, it's yeah. larger than life. The most of the sets, even when they're real locations, they kind of look fake. Vittorio Storaro is the oh, cinematographer nice. and is beautiful to look at. Of course it is. Um, and so it really does feel kind of stagey and melodramatic, but in, I mean that as a good thing, that's, that's, that's what he's going for. And he makes this sort of big broad movie and Kate Winslet is knocking it out of the park. Um, she's really, you know, it's a four hander, but she's really the lead if you yeah. had to pick one. Um, uh, and, uh, I like, I tend to like that, that sort of thing. Um, I've liked it more as I've gotten older and had more of an appreciation. Yeah. The more movies I watch from, you know, the span that movies have existed, the more I'm able to contextualize these things. Yeah. And, you know, and, and so, you know, watching the odd, you know, 1950s melodrama 20 years ago when most of the movies that I was watching were made in the eighties and nineties, it mm-hmm. really stuck out. You know, yeah, yeah. But as the more movies you see, the more you understand different kinds of you know uh, filmic storytelling or right. presentation. Um, and so I think in that in, in that way, if you have an appreciation for that sort of thing, um, I think Wonder Wheel is going to be right up your alley. But um, I think you know, I know I know there are other people who hate it, and I kind of uh, understand why they might because it's. Um, it very much makes it makes a handful of decisions, you know, aesthetic decisions, um, very early on, and commits to them fully. Let me ask you this: as you are getting more on board with this type of thing, uh, do you at all want to return to Frank Darabont's The Majestic? I've never seen The Majestic. Boy, so, um, I think I, I might to... want to return to it because I think I might have more patience for it now because it's so blatantly Capra-esque, which yeah. is something that I did not have any appreciation for at the time. Um, but yeah, it's very earnest and very syrupy. I don't know that I'm that much of a Frank Darabont fan anymore. Like, uh, I think I, st- I think I still, I, I don't know if I'd even say I'm a fan, but uh, he's not enough to get me out into the theater, but, yeah. but he's a solid enough director. I mean, I don't um, think I ever liked the green mile. If I remember correctly, I have to go back almost. There's a lot now. I like about the green mile. 
But I think if we, if, uh, it's too bad we weren't doing this podcast in 1999 so I could look up yeah. <laughs> my reaction to the Green Mile. My memory is that I didn't think it was very good. Right. I um, remember at the time, I can tell you something that you said at the time. Because I remember I liked the Green Mile for the most part at the time. Uh-huh. And you said, this place must just fly through light bulbs because (laughs) because every time because like the effect like every time john coffee does anything the light bulbs explode and then and you use that kind of as a jumping off point say like they they go to that well too often it should have been something to indicate a climax like oh my gosh look at this amazing thing he's done um like up until then, maybe the, the light just grows brighter. And then at the very end, when he is healing someone of cancer or something like right. that, then like, okay, now the light bulbs explode, but they do that from the word go. And so you said like, man, they just, they must have just boxes of light bulbs in the, <laughs> in the back. So I was like, I was a little smart ass back then. Oh yes. Um, all right. Next up, we watch a movie that I know you've seen. Okay. Um, and, uh, I'm going to tell you, uh, wonderful review you wrote. Oh, thank because you. I went and read your review after I watched it. And there's some we've talked about how hard it is to talk about a movie that you're uh, split on. Um, and I feel like you like walked a tighter, tighter really well and actually got across how you felt about split. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I'm kind of on the same uh, in, in the same boat with you. I don't think it's great, I, but I didn't I don't regret having watched it. Yeah, um, I'll tell you. Uh, the story of how I watched it, um, I got a screener. So, um, listeners know, cause it's been weeks now. Um, and you know, you and I have talked over, over text. My, uh, my dog passed away. Yes. Um, and so a couple of days, that was on a Wednesday night. So that Friday night, Natalie and I were kind of like, we don't want to be home. Let's, let's go out. Basically what we were saying is like, let's go get drunk. <laughs> got it. Um, that'd be a way of, of coping with it. And so, um, you know, we, uh, walked to, there's a bar in our neighborhood. There's a number, number of bars in our neighborhood, the one we like to go to. Uh, and so, and I, and I just like, we came home and we checked the mail that had come that afternoon and I got my screener for split and it was like one o'clock in the morning and I was drunk and Natalie was like, I'm going to bed. And I was like, I'm watching split. <laughs> so that's how I watched it is like inebriated at one o'clock in the morning. Um, so I'm not sure. Stone cold sober at 7 PM is when I watched it. <laughs> yeah. um, um, but, uh, I mean, there's so much, like whenever I watch an M. Night Shyamalan movie, even the ones I don't like, I'm like, he's got it. Like he's got something. There's something about the way he lays out shots yeah. and the way he introduces information. And he's so, sure of himself and sure handed, um, with his framing camera movement, but not in like a way that is, uh, when I say that it makes it sound like mechanical almost, but it's right. not, it, it feels organic. It feels emotional. Um, but it also feels economical. I, you know, I love just shot to shot. I love watching his, his movies the, and he makes, it's not just about the camera movement. It's the, you know, to the mise en scene as well. Mm-hmm. Like in the opening sequence, um, when when they're you know the the leading up to the kidnapping yes when the girls and their dad played by neil huff bpu award winner and the only person to actually accept his award neil huff oh that's right he did that's oh, he run for neil huff yeah let's give him another one this year uh, all right split okay. <laughs> even though he's in like essentially two scenes or one long scene depending on how you see it well i've got um, good news we have a, a, category, a category just yeah. for that but no um you know, they're leaving the one girl's birthday party. Mm-hmm. It's, um, um, uh, what's her name? I have forgotten. Uh, why can't I think of her name? She's in, uh, 
Not the girl from the witch. Right. The girl whose, um, whose name is something else. Annabelle or something like that. Yeah. It's something like that. She's in Columbus, Uh, I believe. Yeah. And she, and she's marvelous in it. Um, and she was also in, uh, Haley Lee Richardson. Edge of 17. Haley Lee Richardson. There we go. Um, so anyway, they're leaving and he's like, they're carrying presents and he's carrying also the leftover food, which I feel like M. Night Shyamalan specifically was like, get me bright red styrofoam. Like yeah. it's recognizably like takeout, but also it really calls attention to itself, which then when Anya Taylor-Joy looks in the side view mirror mm-hmm. and she sees those like knocked over and splattered onto the parking lot, like because it caught your eye in the shot leading up to the car, it becomes, yeah. it makes more of an impact. I love, he's like, he's, he's such a thoughtful director. And, yeah. Um, on the other hand, he, his, you know, his, uh, fatal flaw, uh, is that he is always chasing too often chasing that twist. Yeah. And I think, and it's not even right to call the end of split a twist. It's like a minor reveal. Yeah. But the problem is he, he, he sort of introduces his minor reveal in lieu of resolving the movie. And yeah. I, I kind of felt like, Oh, that's like, okay. So I, I had an idea of what the quote unquote spoiler or, or the twist or whatever it was just yeah. from what I'd heard. And I turned, it turned out I was pretty much right, but I expected it to be a bigger thing. Yeah. I expected it to be a big deal that it shows up, but it's like, it's almost like an aside at the end. Yeah. But it like the movie felt like it didn't end or or at least the plot part of the movie. I think character wise from Anya Taylor joys perspective, I think, um, her performance is great. And the shot of her, um, in the police car waiting for her uncle to come pick her up is like, uh, it's a, it's, I, I, I don't, I guess most people have seen the movie already. It's sad and tragic. She's also, she's overcome the thing, but yeah. you realize like, um, you know, things aren't exactly great for her. And uh, even if she's able to overcome the other thing, the, the longer, you know, more lifelong yeah. thing, even then it's like, well, it's still going to be a sad thing. Cause she's still so very alone. Yeah. Um, and but she's a survivor now, like on a number of levels. And that's one of the things that I really like about it. I just wish among other things that M night Shyamalan had treated the other girls a little bit better. You mean not like stripping them down to their underwear halfway through the movie, something like that. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. That seemed that that weirdly seemed like a not him move. He's never really been an exploitative director. Well, like the, no, no, I don't think of him that way at all. Um, which is why it struck me as odd. And I, the only reason I thought is like, okay, well maybe, he did that so that it differentiates our char- our main character from the others so that when sh- when her skin is ultimately revealed oh right um, yeah, yeah that's like, a good point it could be that but it's still like oh that's that's some yeah <laughs> now you now you are completely objectifying these other girls in service of the main character i don't think it's exploitation but i do i think it's objectification yeah uh, and then finally, um, not finally, but one more before I t- toss it over to you. Uh, I watched a movie called Crown Heights starring Lakeith Stanfield. It's based on a true story of yes. a, um, a man from Crown Heights, Brooklyn, who spent 21 years in prison for uh, a murder he didn't commit. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, uh, the movie is, I think, very, it's, I mean, it's the kind of movie that is, it's, it's very, it's well-made it's very infuriating at the time. If that's if that concept sounds infuriating to you, sure. someone spending 21 years in prison for a crime they didn't commit. Um, that's just the surface of how, yeah. how upsetting this movie is. 
and how, um, like, like one thing, I'll just give you a taste of the infuriating parts of the movie. Um, he's imprisoned along with like, or, or like he's, uh, you know, and, uh, convicted along Mm -hmm. with the person who actually did like, did commit. They know who did commit it. They're saying yeah. this guy was an accomplice, even though he was on another part it. of town, didn't even know the victim or the killer. That's, mm-hmm. Anyway, so the the killer, the guy who actually is the killer, gets a longer sentence, but gets out earlier because they, because Lakeith Stanfield's character, because he's been convicted, when he goes to a parole hearing, if he insists on his innocence, the parole hearing hearing is over. Hmm. They have no interest in letting him out on parole until he shows remorse. Yeah. But he's not going to show remorse because he didn't do it. Uh, it's infuriating. Yeah. And, um, that's a little Kafka esque when you think about it. Uh, yeah. And the, there's so many great, like Luke Stanfield is the main role, but there's so many great little, um, character, uh, like roles in there. Um, Bill camp plays the, good guy lawyer who eventually does uh, help get him out. But, um, the parole, uh, the parole hearing guy, he just has that one scene and it's, it's a great, like if this were a better movie, this would be a nominee, <laughs> potential nominee for the BP award for best uh, performance under 15 minutes. And it's Yul Vazquez. Do you know that actor? Um, here's how you probably remember him. Got it here. here um, this is how Natalie remembered him. Who doesn't want to wear the ribbon? I don't think I know it. You don't know that from Seinfeld? When Kramer doesn't oh, want to wear it. Got it. So, yes. Yeah, okay. The intimidating, heavily accented gay guy. Yes. He's a, this guy's played a lot of other roles, you know, okay, in yeah. which he is not, you know, a walking punchline. Yeah. But I will always think of him as his two episodes as the intimidating, heavily accented gay man from Seinfeld. Got it. Yes. And, um, and don't, and he and his boyfriend, I assume they're together yeah, yeah. and he, and his boyfriend is, very unintimidating, but the two of them together, uh, don't they like want to steal an armoire yeah, or something like that? That's the other episode that That's the, they show uh, the first one where, um, I think like Kramer bought an armoire and then asked Elaine to like sit with it on the sidewalk while he went to get the truck Yeah, and they walk by and they like it. So they just take it yeah. and they just like bully <laughs> Elaine. <laughs> anyway, um, we're, we're not talking about Seinfeld. We're talking yeah. about Yul Vazquez and how, uh, he's fantastic. Um, uh, and one thing I'll say that I really liked about the movie, especially the first half, um, it is a procedural and so it's a little dry in that sense, but the, it's, I think powered along enough by the power of its, uh, story. I said power twice. Um, but one thing I like about the first half is that the movie unfolds as if, because of course he doesn't know he's going to be in prison for 21 years. Right. The movie unfolds as if you don't know that. Mm-hmm. So each thing like, because you probably don't, yeah. honestly. No, you, yeah, yeah, you don't, unless you know going in what the movie's about. So each sort of section, you think, it's like, okay, he's been arrested, now we're getting to the police investigation, this is going to be what the movie's about. Yeah. Oh, wait, no, it's not. And then it's the trial, and it's like, okay, so this is a movie about a trial. And it's like, oh, no, he's sentenced, he's going to prison. And then it's like, okay, this is about the parole hearing. And it's sort of like, it, in, in the way that it's, it's intentionally paced in a way that it keeps feeling like it's leading up to something that it's not, which... Yeah causes the frustration that he's, you know, nothing like on the level that he is actually feeling, but it gives you an idea of, uh, of that in terms of, um, creating empathy for the character. Um, it's well done. It's well acted. Um, and, uh, definitely worth, worth, uh, 
checking out. I think it's, um, it's a movie that, uh, Amazon like put out distributed into theaters, which means Mm -hmm. if you have Amazon prime, it's probably going to show up at some point if it's not there already to watch for free. So, uh, do that. Okay. All right. You're up. All right. So I will reference, uh, okay. Well not reference. There's a movie that I did reference a few weeks ago as simply not liking, but it was under embargo, which is ridiculous because there are plenty of reviews out there anyway from (laughs) Sundance. Um, but, uh, but I did not go into any more detail and that is Martin McDonough's, uh, Three, three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri, uh, a film I do not care for. Um, Let me ask you this. I still haven't seen it as okay. of this recording. Do the characters say Missouri or do they say Missouri? I don't remember them saying either. I don't, mm-hmm. I, I don't think they even really make reference to the town. I don't think you ever hear the words Ebbing, Missouri or Missouri. Okay. Uh, Ebbing, Missouri. Um, <laughs> that's, how so, that's how they'd say it. It's been so, I mean, like, uh, as a Missouri native, it has been kind of surreal to me to see Billboard, because, like, the main logo of the movie yeah. is, like, backgrounded by an outline of the state of Missouri. And it's, it's such a weird thing, because I grew up seeing that everywhere. It's yeah. on, like, Department of Transportation trucks or whatever you see, like, you can't get enough part of, of the logo. And now, uh, you know, and then I went. You know, now I've gone 15 years not seeing the Missouri logo every day in my life, or Missouri uh, outline every day in my life. And it uh, anyway, it speaks to it speaks to the uh, insular nature of uh, Hollywood filmmaking that we're excited when they even acknowledge their other states. <laughs> yeah, like oh, it's right there. Look, yeah. they've got the shape and everything. Um, yeah, boy, uh, I'll say this. I mean, it's it's acted well, particularly. Sam Rockwell, which everyone's been hearing about, but Woody Harrelson is great. He's great in everything. I, I, he's a really solid unsung actor. Um, but there is a quality to his character that he is a decent man and decent is often kind of boring, but Mm -hmm. the way that he is decent and wise, it's such a smart move on the part of, of, uh, McDonough as a writer because this guy could be, it could easily be a villain, but he's barely, he's not even really an antagonist. Like just the larger situation is an, is the antagonist. So I like that. I think that's very smart. I think it's very mature. Um, the acting all around is, is pretty solid. Francis McDormand is, is probably going to win a bunch of awards. What about Sam Rockwell? He's going to win some awards. You think he could, going to come could. through for me. I mean, I, I have Francis team? McDormand and I'm not rooting for her. Uh, Sam Rockwell, granted, he's going to lose to uh, Willem Dafoe mm-hmm. at pretty much every turn, yeah. as far as I can tell. But, um, but he, yeah, he's, he'll, he'll get a, he'll, you'll get your points. Don't worry. Okay, <laughs> um, but yeah, I love Frances McDormand. She's one of my favorite actresses. And of course I, I adore, um, Marge Gunderson in Fargo. And I think she's just a remarkably talented actress, but I feel like she's not given a whole lot of notes to play. And the character suffers the screenplay suffers from what i put this in my review what i have over the years come to refer to as aaron brockovich syndrome where everybody else realizes oh this movie isn't about me it's about her okay let me set her up um and so like uh the always dependable nick cersei shows up in one scene is like the 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 priest of the local church who tries to assure her to like take down those billboards and then she and he basically sets her up to go into this long well thought out a seemingly off the cuff monologue about like the crimes of the Catholic church. And it's just, it, it it's just trying to, it, it's really scattershot, but not in a way I like, it just feels like it's trying to do too much and it feels very, very pleased with itself. Um, 
friend of the show, Jason Eakin, on the way to our Oscar draft, uh-huh. he was uh, he was driving me, and I had just seen the film, and I said the film it, the script just feels sloppy like a first draft and he said little known fact well it's not that little known it's it's out there he goes martin mcdonough only ever writes one draft and i said i i believe it with this film absolutely i think in bruges is a wonderful script but and i didn't see seven psychopaths but this feels so he's he's a self-assured filmmaker and he has a good cast and he has and he still has some pretty good instincts as a writer but it's just like when you think of everything that was there at the table mm-hmm. and he just did not, it just, he didn't put it all together. Right. In my opinion. And I'm, I'm very much alone on this. Like everybody loves it. I don't see it at all. Well, let me ask you this, but what you just said about the, um, you know, the very well thought out speech and setting people up when I, and the fact that the speech was about the Catholic church made me think of his brother's movie Calvary. Right. And that one, I think, has the feel like everyone is all always making speeches in that movie because it's okay. it sort of has that slightly larger than life feel. Yes. Are you saying that Martin McDonough here is going for more naturalism? And so I, the I do think there, doesn't fit. I think there's a certain heightened quality to it, but somehow in Calvary, which admittedly I did not see all of, I saw like 45 minutes of and absolutely adored. And I want to get back to it when I can watch all of it. And when I'm in the right mood, um, yeah, I like bought the Blu-ray cause I like loved it so much, but yeah. I have yet to be in the mood to watch Calvary again. Cause it's such a punishing movie. There are movies that I, that I own that I absolutely adore, but I, I was like, I want to give this film its due mm-hmm. when I rewatch it. Um, and so there's just, I don't know. There's just something about, there's something about a monologue in the midst of dialogue and the dialogue goes back and forth mm-hmm. the way people do. And then suddenly this shows up and it's like, Oh, Hey, look, an audition piece. Wait, what? Okay. It feels like that, uh, too often. That sounds like a first draft. All right. France. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's better than what I would have written in high school, but the fact that I even started to think in that, in those terms is <laughs> yeah. bad news. Yeah. So listeners feel free to weigh in. Uh, I've read a lot of reviews and I, and I can't necessarily dispute what a lot of the reviewers say. I just don't understand how they came to the conclusion of it being good having seen the same movie I did and making the same observations I did. Um, so it's, it's, it's very strange. Um, but I'll get my points for having Francis McDormand in the draft and that's all that matters in the, yeah. In the fantasy award season, which indeed it's probably too late for you. It's not actually too late for you to start your, not yet, but it's getting there. Yeah. Cause the indie spirit nominations are coming up Tuesday, right? The 21st. Yeah. 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 Oh boy. Yeah. Then it begins. All right. Um, all right. I watched a, a little crime movie, um, that has, a few things to recommend it, but it's overall not that great. It's called Thumper. Um, and basically there's a, it's about, uh, it's high school kids who work for a local drug dealer. Who's, a um, uh, a, a vet played by not a veterinarian, a veteran of mm. our wars in, in the middle East, um, played by Pablo Schreiber, Oh, nice. Uh, Nikki Sabadka. Yeah. Um, who's all, he's also on Orange is the New Black, I think, or was. Uh, oh, yes. Okay. Show. Um, and he was also very briefly on The Good Wife, but he's a very memorable actor. Like mm-hmm. when he can, he can show up for a small role and steal the movie for a little bit. And that's exactly yeah. what he does in Thumper. He's the best part of the movie. There's an effortless um, intensity to him that I like a lot. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then you've also got a small roles from Lena Headey. Oh. and Ben Feldman. Mm-hmm. But uh, the main 
cast is the so there's this one guy uh named beaver played by daniel weber he's uh fantastic in the movie actually and there's a new girl in town played named cat played by eliza taylor who uh, apparently was on that show the uh the 100 that cw like sci-fi show Mm. supposed to be a good show um uh and basically beaver's trying to get a job selling drugs for pablo schreiber's character cat is sort of Beaver's sort of interested in Cat. Cat is not really interested in him romantically, but is interested in her ability and his ability to get her drugs. Yeah, uh, and everyone gets tied up in each other's shit, and things go wrong. It's kind of a, I mean, it's a low budget sort of like modern day. It's noirish in a way, um, but um, it has a bit of a twist that I don't want to give away either. Uh, but overall, I think it leans too hard i look okay i'm okay. not opposed to social issue dramas i'm okay with movies that are like i, I have a point to make and i'm gonna make it yeah but there is a there comes a point where it's like well now the movie has stopped and you're just making your point yeah and so pablo Schreiber, as good as he is he has this speech that's about like it's basically like um you know, here's why say, you know, a lot of the people who voted for Donald Trump, here's why they're so angry. And here's why, you know, there's a lot of people in sort of, you know, lefties like myself on my Twitter feed who were saying like, you know, dismissing the idea of Trump voters of it being about economic anxiety and saying they're just racist. And this movie kind of makes a point like, well, the two things often, you know, especially with undereducated people, those two things often end up being, you know, one is part of the other. Uh, And so there's a, there's a speech that's about that, but it's, it stops being the character. It just is like it, you know, the movie was better when it was kind of hinting at that, this like almost entirely, uh, white community but very poor um and um turning to whatever means they they can um but then it had to go and lay its thumb on the scale uh and it kind of it took me out of the movie it never really won me back after that um plus lena hetty's character feels like such a screenwriter concoction but i don't want to get it she's like a detective yeah yeah (laughs) um anyway that's that's what's next for you next for me is a uh, blu-ray that i uh, reviewed oh good it is the lawnmower man oh right um which i had seen many 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 years ago um and was interested to rewatch it because it's one of those movies from the 90s that was very much about computer effects both in the story and just yeah. the film itself um and i was interested to see how that was because it's always fun to see like all right let's see if people what they think the internet is or what they think cyberspace is um and it, it's from an acting standpoint like pierce brosnan plays a, a, a scientist who you know he's he's not necessarily a mad scientist but you definitely see a certain type of passion and obsession in his character that i like a lot uh jeff fahey plays this uh, sort of dim gardener the lawnmower man uh who is experimented on and, and just his consciousness grows and he's able to do these really amazing things um okay so far so good so it's being there crossed with flowers for Algernon crossed with crossed with virtuosity with probably a little bit of Lucy in there as well. Uh, um, Lucy, but okay. It's not bad. Uh, yeah. And so it's, the writing is kind of on the nose in a lot of ways. 
and the effects. Here's the thing. I don't, bad effects don't necessarily bother me except when that's the whole point. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I'm sure I said this in my reviews, like I'm sure at the time they were very exciting. And someone said, I saw it at the time. It wasn't. <laughs> um, and, and so more than anything, like when they're in cyberspace, I feel like it's a screensaver and not a new one. Um, mm-hmm. so it's, and it's not that exciting. It's not, it apparently it was considered a horror movie at some point, which is insane to me. Um, so it's, it's just kind of this interesting little, uh, nugget from the nineties, uh, as people were trying to figure out what technology, what this new technology, I don't think they even called it the internet. I think they called it cyberspace. Um, and I mean in the film, uh, and so, it's it's fun. It's a curiosity. Uh, it's a little relic uh, of of the time uh, that is not necessarily worth watching. All right. Well, I'll tell you what is worth watching. I watched okay. BPM. That's beats per minute. Got it. Uh, it's a French film. Now, I just with Thumper, I talked about how uh, that movie sort of soured when it got too speechy, mm-hmm. right? BPM is a movie about activists. It's full of people making speeches, and yet even at two hours and 15 minutes or long, whatever it is, it's a long movie. Uh, it never forgets to be about the characters first. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's an incredibly moving and powerful and, uh, sad and beautiful and joyous and warm movie. Um, basically it takes place in the 1990s, uh, uh among the Paris chapter of act up, which is, um, the New York founded, um, AIDS activist organization. Mm-hmm. Um, did you see, it was a few years ago, there was uh, how to survive a plague that documentary. No, I didn't. It was largely about, uh, act up. Um, so this is the Paris chapter. Uh, and a lot of, uh, reviewers have noted what I'm about to say is that the movie, um, makes use of its runtime by sort of, it starts off very much being an ensemble piece. You're getting to meet all of the big people in the, um, in the, in, in the organization. But then, no, I saw your, it's not what you, uh, okay. <laughs> it doesn't go the way you, that you okay. think it does not go that way either, but you know, anyway, um, but it just sort of eventually sort of, uh, focuses in on this couple that meet okay. through act up the two young men. Um, one of them is, um, new to act up. He's very shy and reserved. And also he's, um, negative. He's not, he doesn't have HIV right. and then he meets and he's just kind of an kind of a pessimist. <laughs> yeah, no, he, uh, I don't think this is going to go well. Um, and then, but then he, um, befriends and then eventually falls in love with this other guy who's the opposite in every way. He is mm-hmm. HIV, HIV positive, but also incredibly outgoing and one of the loudest voices and most active people in the, yeah. um, in, in the scene. Um, and it's, it's just so it's a beautiful touching love story that is also very much about, um, you know, it's about love, but it's in death at the mm-hmm. same time. The two things, uh, go together very much for yeah. these people. Um, okay. uh, especially at this, at this time. Um, uh, and I don't, I, I, I can't, uh, I'm afraid I'll, you know, um, knock something over, uh, <laughs> if I try to go into too much, uh, death because my feeling about the movie is so, Hmm. Um, so fragile almost. Um, hmm. but I, I, I really think it's an incredibly powerful movie. 
Uh, I should explain the reason that you mentioned my my eyes lit up is that I I did expect because you you hear stories and I I've seen documentaries and I remember I watched uh, and the band played on and uh, stories about like the gay community in the eighties like during the like when the AIDS crisis is like really you know in in full swing that sounds negative yeah. um, but uh, and you just hear about like it's almost a horror movie and yeah. that like, or like an Agatha Christie, uh, you know, and then there were none. This idea is just like, all my friends are gone. I'm the last one. And so yeah. like, as you were talking about, it starts as an ensemble and then, and then gets more specific. I thought, and don't get me wrong. Of course it's heartbreaking, but I, I like the idea of structuring something so real life and tragic as that sort of thing where yeah. it can't be an ensemble anymore. Yeah, yeah, because of this thing. So, and certainly there are characters who who sure. die in the movie. It's sure. uh, very sad. Um, yeah, there was another documentary. Might have been the same year as How to Survive a Plague called We Were Here, which was oh, yeah. more about the was focused more, I think, on the San Francisco gay community during the uh, the AIDS uh, crisis and the AIDS epidemic, and uh, it very much leaned on that idea of like it's interviewing people who were there, but mm-hmm. also constantly reminding you that you're just getting a fraction of the story because so yeah. many of the people who were there aren't around to tell you the story. Yeah. Uh, that was a really good one that I think got kind of overlooked, I think, because maybe How to Survive a Plague was yeah. the, uh, you know, it was the gay doc, gay, or yeah. the AIDS, gay AIDS documentary that year. Uh, it was the Dante's Peak <laughs> to How to Survive a Plague's Volcano. Yeah. And then, but then there was a third one. That, there was like three that year because there was also Vito, which I think was a made-for-HBO one. Hmm. It was specifically about one guy who okay. was uh, an AIDS activist. What was and that guy's name? His name was Vito. Okay, got it. Um, his name was Bill, but he was constantly <laughs> getting bills out of the way. Oh, I just said Bill. Okay. Uh, I, saw, I saw on a flight, but it was not censored which was nice. Uh, I saw the big sick. Oh, good. Which I liked quite a bit. Not as much as I wanted to, not as much as I thought I was going to, but one thing I really like about it is just how organic and naturalistic it feels. Um, you know, I mean, this is Kumail Nanjiani, uh, and his wife writing about their own story. It's like, it's going to be hard. If I were to write a movie about my own marriage and how Uh it started, it's going to be hard to uh, remove hindsight from that. Um, but I think it feels very in the moment and you're not a hundred percent sure how it's, I mean, I know how it's going to end, yeah. but there are times when it's like, wow, things do seem to be getting worse. Um, so I, I do like the way it's, it's structured and it feels, uh, and I like that the drama and the comedy do feed into each other really well and very organically. Um, Holly Hunter does a, it does a really great job. I'll tell you, Ray Romano is the one that really... I've not seen Men of a Certain Age. I know that that's oh, right, the one yeah. that got people's attention uh, of him as an actor. But when I talk about the idea of doing drama and then comedy and putting them together and having them fit flawlessly, his character and what he does with it is that, 100%. Like There are moments where it's incredibly sad uh well the moment but also very yeah that is hilarious and sad at the same time yeah talking about 
his marriage to Kumail yeah. in Kumail's apartment in the middle of the night. Yeah. <laughs> and that was, it was incredibly touching and maybe as hard as I laughed in the entire movie. Uh, yeah. Like he, he's talking about this, this moment that he'd like, he'd cheated on his wife, you know, many years ago. And it was just the one time. And he's like, he goes, and he goes afterwards, I just like, what the fuck did you do? And he's like, and he yells like, what the, f-? and it's just, there's a real palpable, like self-hatred there, yeah, but it's still funny. <laughs> and then he says like, you know, you have that uh, moment of clarity after your <laughs> orgasm. <laughs> and he's like, like, hey, yeah, I do. And like, and so it's this moment that is, that's funny, but it's also very powerful followed by this bit of delightful awkwardness. Um, so it's, it's a movie that I really, really liked. Um, not quite in my top 10, but, uh, maybe if I were to watch it again, I would like it, uh, I think it more might still be in mine, but, uh, We'll see. We'll see how things shake out. All right. This won't take long. Okay. Um, I watched the uh, live action Beauty and the Beast. Uh, this is the. This, did you see it? No. It's not like bad, right. generally. Um, I mean, Luke Evans is in it, so <laughs> I know you're not <laughs> playing the most charismatic character <laughs> of the last of Disney. Uh, um, well, I think, I don't know if he actually is charismatic or if he just thinks he's charismatic, but well, there's case. just such a, there's such a bigness to him and Luke Evans is not a character. I think of that way. Um, yeah. And th- so the, it's not bad, but I like the main thing it made me think was I should watch the animated movie again. Yeah. That's the main th- Like, whereas I didn't feel that way with, with Cinderella, which is yeah. the best of these, um, or even the Jungle Book, which I enjoyed. The Jungle Book mm-hmm. was a good time. I never saw Maleficent. Is that, yeah, is that all of them? Uh, I think that's all of them. Yes. Um, okay. As of right now. Um, and, and this one's not bad, although it does, you know it has some songs that aren't in you know it's it's right. longer. It has songs that aren't in the animated one, including maybe my favorite part is a song that is just the Beast's solo song. Nice. Uh, that he sings after he like tells bell you know you can leave you know you're not my prisoner anymore go to your father or whatever because mm-hmm. she sees her father uh in the mirror right. thing and so he sings a song like as he's ascending one of the towers mm. and so he'll stop at a window and sing a part and each time we look we see out the window we see bell on a horse oh. leaving the grounds and she's a little further away every time and the very end he stands at the top of the tower lets out the big final note and the camera sort of pulls back from him across the entire grounds of the castle and then drops down to the road to meet bell just as she's leaving the gate it's That's great. awesome yeah it's the best part of the movie i think and it's a song that isn't in the so i guess that that scene is the reason for this live action movie to exist yeah but um uh, oh, overall, it's it's just uh, uh, it, it's not really not really worth it. And also, the um, I think there's something you can't live up to, <laughs> where because the beast is essentially, you know, he's mostly a CGI character when he's a beast, yeah. so he's essentially a cartoon again in a way. Yeah. And then, see, I guess when you're drawing a character, you can draw a human man that stands up to this incredibly right. intimidating, terrifying beast. Whereas Dan Stevens, as hunky as a guy as he is, when yeah. it's just Dan Stevens, after we've been seeing this hulking beast, uh, so long, he looks like a little twerp. <laughs> it's yeah. so, like weird. Yeah. Uh, I was like, Oh, this is really, uh, disappointing. It's really anticlimactic. It's just this like, you know, when so they, they didn't make guy. him bigger. 
Uh, uh, no. Oh wow! They just make it's just Dan Stevens. Um, huh. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. That's one of the neat things. I, I have a very specific memory of the animated film where uh, Belle puts her hand in Beast's hand, and her her entire hand is basically just in his palm. Yeah, and it just gives you the sense of like, oh, he is like he could he is monstrous. Yeah. Um, and Gaston is a big character and he is dwarfed by him as well. And like, it makes the character, it makes the beast that much more inaccessible and that much more intimidating. Yeah. But if he's just a hairy guy, uh, no, I'm saying the beast is a big guy. They make him. Oh, bigger. I see. Okay. I'm saying okay. When it's but Dan, Dan Stevens. Stevens. Yeah. But I'm saying the reveal at the end. Okay. I see. He just stands up in like his tattered clothes and it's like, who's this fucking nerd? <laughs> Okay. All right. So I understand what you're saying, but even then, uh, <laughs> yeah, I guess that's the thing is like when it comes right down to it, like, Oh, the Prince from beauty and the beast, we just, a he looks like the essence of this beautiful prince voiced by Robbie Benson. Whereas this is like, Hey, it's the guy from the guest. <laughs> yeah. He's the beast. Yeah. Isn't that fun? Um, incidentally, uh, once again, friend of the show, Jason Eakin and I were talking and we agreed having not seen, Beauty and the Beast that uh, Gaston should have been played by somebody like The Rock. Okay. First off, he's huge. He oozes charisma, and he's a guy that we all like. He uh, not oh, unlike I the see. character himself. He's well liked in the town, and then we see like this darker part of him. Yeah, so, I like that idea actually. But you know what? I think that ship has sailed. Yeah, can't too late to go back. Okay, are we continuing? Uh, yeah. Okay. Next up for me, I saw this on the flight coming back. I did not see anything uh, in Asia for that three weeks, which, by the way, turned out to be very difficult for me. Uh, I did re- not see movies. Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, so uh, I saw Brigsby Bear. Oh, on the I way like back, I liked it a lot. I expected it to be a little bit too precious. Oh, I was and, all geared up tonight. Like, yeah. <laughs> And, uh, it's, it's sincere and there are moments that on the page, I think I probably would roll my eyes at, but it's delivered so well. I think Kyle Mooney's great. Mm -hmm. And the moment where he's talking with this guy, Spence, and they're kind of having this moment and, and, but it's just kind of a casual moment. And then James very quietly says, you're my friend. Mm -hmm. Like as if to say like, Oh, this is what I've been hearing about, but never experienced. That's Mm -hmm. fun. Um, and, uh, and it's just, it's a really well-crafted, really well-written. It's a very funny movie. Yeah. Um, acting, I think, uniformly good. Uh, it was nice to see Mark Hamill. Um, and yeah. and he, gets to, he gets to be on screen and do voice work. I know. <laughs> at the same time, the two things. And I do like that it, it does acknowledge the difficulty of what it is like. These are the only parents James has ever known. Mm-hmm. And they never actually hurt him. They never, well, sorry. When you think of this, it's not like, you know, J- Greg Kinnear says like, did they touch you? And he says, yes, they did, but it wasn't a sexual touch. Yeah. They weren't physically hurting them or were molesting him. Th- they did limit him. And in doing so, they psychologically hurt him, but there was still like genuine affection back and forth. Mm-hmm. And it's like, it's not room. It's not that right. kind of thing. And so, it complicates things and he still has a love for them. And he's told by everybody that he, he shouldn't. And, and he understands that he shouldn't. It, I I feel like it probably could have explored that a little bit more, but I think if it were to do so, it wouldn't fit tonally with the film. I think it explores it just enough for there to be a really palpable melancholy to it. And I, yeah, 
like yourself really was expecting me like, okay, there we go. But, uh, I don't think I experienced that really even once. So I liked it a lot. Okay. I, I watched the documentary. Speaking of the, uh, you know, uh, Dante's peak volcano, okay. Deep impact, uh, Armageddon, um, uh, Panda Express, Yoshinoya beef bowl, um, <laughs> thing. That's sure. I don't know if you know that's spe- I'm specifically referencing knocked off. <laughs> uh, I do not recall. Okay. That is, there is a part where they're naming those movies and Jay Baruchel goes Panda Express, Yoshinoya beef bowl, <laughs> um, um, which is, also racist because Panda Express is Chinese and Yoshinoya beef bowl is Japanese. Um, look when you hate it all as I do, <laughs> it's all the same. It's all the thing that you have to avoid in order to go find a Wendy's somewhere. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, there are two documentaries out this year about the 1992 LA riots, right? Uh, because it's the 25th anniversary. I haven't seen let it fall yet, okay. which is actually the, uh, probably better reviewed overall one, but I did see LA 92 and, uh, I don't know if I'm a sucker or whatever, but I thought it was fantastic. Okay. Um, it's, um, it's angry and assaultive and unrelenting. This okay. movie, uh, it's also, it also features no narration or talk or interviews, modern day interviews. It is comprised entirely of footage from the time. Um, uh, and from early, cause it, it, um, goes back to the Watts riots and stuff, uh, as well. Uh, but it's entirely essentially like news footage and security camera footage, um, for, a, you know, a hundred straight minutes. Um, and it, I feel like it's not really, eventually it gets to a place of like showing, uh, pe- people's capacity for, for grace and for helping each other and forget for forgiveness. But at the same time, it like before that, it doesn't shy away from showing people's capacity for anger and hatred and violence. Um, and it's, uh, the movie's just a a raw wound that, uh, is not interested in making you feel better about what happened. Yeah. Um, it's basic premise. Like I said, it's, um, that it includes um, footage from the Watts riots. So it's basically premises like there were 27 years between the Watts riots and the LA riots. And so much of the things that fueled them are the same, mm-hmm. you know, so little changed in that time. Now it's been 25 years and the movie sort of is without coming out and saying it is essentially posing the question of like, has anything changed right. uh, in the 25 years since? Um, and so it's not a, yeah, it's not a happy movie. And I think I really appreciated that sort of look at just how, uh, how terrifying, um, it was and how angry people were and how that anger you could say was largely justified. Sure. But the way that some people expressed that anger was not necessarily justified, but also the movie is not interested in, in, in making any judgments, but right. saying, what was right and what was wrong, but it shows some pretty terrifying stuff that I couldn't believe I haven't seen mm. because there's, there are images that were captured by news cameras that are so powerful and terrifying. I keep using that word because it is it's just, I, I can't imagine um, being on the ground at that time that I can't believe these aren't like in, indelible images that yeah. we all know. Um, like you know, uh, a lot of, um, during the riots, a lot of Korean store owners were targeted and there are shots of them just like, uh, a few stores have been burned. So the Korean owners just like 
got guns and went and stood in front of their store and there's like, they're shooting guns into the street. Yeah. Um, and then there's also the, the movie gook, which I talked about oh, right, earlier yeah. is, you know, for the same reason, 25th anniversary. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's not exactly that, like the character doesn't like arm himself, but there's an awareness that this is going to come our way. Uh, yeah. Um, and then there's also like shots that I guess this was like a home video footage of someone, uh, at their home. Clearly, like I would say based on what we could see, probably like the West Hollywood Hills mm-hmm. looking out and seeing the fires, but they're sort of like in their like, linen pants and drinking wine. It's like almost yeah. like you, like you would think it was staged. If it wasn't, yeah. if it wasn't real, but again, it's not judging those characters either. It's kind of showing how this had an effect on the entire city. I would say the most, there's so much stuff that's that, that I'll never forget, but there's a, there's a shot of, uh, a, a black business owner whose business was burned mm-hmm. in the riots. Just, screaming and crying at the younger people who were doing the yeah. burn. That is, it, uh, it's unbelievable. Like I'm, I'm tearing up just thinking about it yeah. right now. It's, it's so raw. And so much of the movie is like that. It's, uh, it, it doesn't let up. And I think some people have found that to be, uh, I think a little showy maybe or whatever, that it's not exactly, uh, it's not, it's not exactly an intellectual movie. I don't think, but I don't think it's trying. That's to. all right. It's raw. There's yeah. a, that's, yeah, I, I I really think it was it was very well done. For my TV history class that I was a part of uh, last year, um, one of the things that we watched was just like a half hour of different types of footage that like news footage covering uh, the riots um, because at the time it was like this one of the most heavily documented mm-hmm. uh events um and so you see it from all these point of views and then points of view and then you also uh it cuts to like uh we see like 10 minutes of oprah in which she's like dissecting all the things that happen and it talks to store owners it talks to like rioters it talks to cops and it was it was a uh, it was very interesting just again it was like all this stuff put together into a half hour by i think our our instructor and uh and it was just really interesting oh the other part speaking of yeah footage that um you kind of forget sometimes i think about this a lot like sometimes when we focus on events from history, mm-hmm. we kind of forget to contextualize because the world is a very big place and a lot of very different things going on. Yeah. Um, sometimes simultaneously. And so, uh, the movie reminds us that April of 1992, by that point, the 1992 presidential election was in full swing. And yeah. so it shows both president Bush or George H. W. Bush and, uh, then governor Clinton, them addressing it. And like, again, without like really passing judgment, it's like showing how they're, I don't know, utilizing their reaction right. to this as a part of their campaign. Yeah. It's fascinating. All right. So next up for me, uh, is a rewatch. It was also on the plane and, uh, it's a film that I just, I, I didn't know I was in the mood for until I saw it available on the plane. And that is Guy Ritchie's Sherlock Holmes from 2009. Um, have you seen it? I, no, forget. I never saw it. Uh, I saw it, uh, in the theater that year and I've seen it a few times since then. I do own it uh, on DVD 
And so it's a film I was very familiar with, but for whatever reason in that particular moment, as I, as I was watching, I was like, I loved it. I think it is okay. This is going to be weird. I think it's a perfect film mm-hmm. for what it is trying sure, to do. Yeah, I, I think it, I don't think it steps wrong. Um, like maybe once or twice, but I can't, I'm, I'm just saying that I can't even point to anything. Um, I know some, uh, Sherlock Holmes purists, including me at the time before I saw it, were just like, this isn't Sherlock Holmes. Look at all this action, all that. And it's just like, no, it's a very malleable character. Um, Mm -hmm. you can do a lot with him as we've seen from various, uh, adaptations. Um, and it's the, I, and I think like the upcoming Sherlock gnome, (laughs) Do you know, <laughs> I just saw a, a poster to Romeo and Juliet, which I, uh, which might have, no, the very first film I reviewed for this site yeah. was season of the season witch. Of the witch second was, I believe, Romeo and Juliet. <laughs> Good God. What a terrible film. Um, I get, but I guess successful. I don't know. Damn. Um, and so Robert Downey Jr. is doing like some really good work. Like it, it was, this is in back to Sherlock Holmes, not in Romeo and Juliet. <laughs> I don't remember, I don't remember the in- cast, um, <laughs> but, uh, no, it's, you know, uh, at this point we all kind of know what Robert Downey Jr. does. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he's very good at it. I think he, he, he's able to lock into something as Tony Stark, but it kind of seems like that's sort of how, how he's, how he's approaching life now and kind of how he plays almost any character at this point. But this was early enough that, you know, Iron Man was only the year before and, Yes, he brings a quirkiness and, and a certain confidence to, to Sherlock, but he also there's also a very deep-seated insecurity. I think Jude Law does a great job as watching their friendship. Yes, people, as people always have, they're like, they're like, you know, there seems to be some kind of weird attraction there. It's like, I guess, yes, you could see it that way. Or how about this? this as you know, this is a thing that bothers the hell out of me. It's like, how about they're just friends? Mm-hmm. How about two guys can have affection for one another and not be attracted to one another. <laughs> At this point, I feel like it's more rare to see genuine male friendship on screen than a romantic male relationship on screen. Uh, I mean, like, I say like genuine, like wh- I don't know. It's, it's, it's something that bothers me a lot. It's one of the things that, as you know, it, it bothered me when, uh, people said that, uh, that Bucky and Captain America should like get together. Well, of course, for a number of reasons, that's not going to happen, but it bothered me. It's like, no, look, if you want to make Captain America gay, have him find someone else. Not because I object to Bucky being gay, but because like, no, these are friends. Just (laughs) let them be friends. Like it's a very rare, it's a very rare thing. I think to see emotional, uh, vulnerable, connected male friendship on screen. Un- and it's pretty rare to see in life too. <laughs> I guess that's true. At least for me. Um, you mean in your own life? Yeah. I don't know. I'm, I'm still here, David. Don't but you I don't, worry. I mean, I don't open up. Well, I don't open up to anyone really emotionally, I guess, except for Natalie. Well, that's not terrible. That's at least a good step in the right direction. Mm, yeah. I mean, there's something that came up in therapy that maybe like I put it, it's not entirely fair to her. <laughs> it puts maybe a bit of pressure on her. Yeah. Um, but, uh, I, th- well, it, we don't necessarily need to analyze you here. Okay. Um, I like, I have a number of very close male friendships, probably my closest being friend of the show, Jason Eakin. Um, but, uh, but yeah, and it's because I'm, I, over the years, like I've been very open and vulnerable and affectionate mm-hmm. to friends and they have been as well 
that it's just like, well, there's, to my knowledge, I can't speak for the other person, but to my knowledge, there's like, there's no sexual thing here. It's just people being friends. And I know that if this were depicted on film, someone somewhere would be like, Oh, I wonder if there's a little, a uh, little something there. And it's like, no, <laughs> it's just, just people be nice, you know, like yeah. anyway. So Holmes and Watson, yes, there is like this weird suggestion, but also there does seem to be a genuine real love and respect and affection for these characters. Um, and, it just, it's a film that like totally gets it from the word go. Like there are, there are like fun action set pieces that I think are perfectly realized. Whereas I think in game of shadows, it went a bit over the top at that point. Um, and they completely misused Mycroft in the second film. Um, and, uh, I just, I can't recommend it highly enough. If you haven't seen it, uh, I think you would enjoy it, David. And, um, and yeah, I was surprised. I knew I was going to enjoy it because I enjoyed it previously, but I think I was surprised by how much I liked it this time. Okay. Um, next up for me is uh, going way back to Jean Renoir's The Crime of Monsieur Lang. Have you hey. ever seen this one? Yeah. Didn't we watch that in school? I didn't. No. Oh, okay. Yeah. We watched it. Uh, um, we watched it in my history of cinema class. Oh, interesting. Um, well, it's been newly restored. Okay. Um, it looks, uh, it looks okay, actually. Um, uh, I don't know. I, I, it's definitely an enjoyable, um, little movie, but it is, I don't, I don't want to say this is too much of a complaint because I tend to agree with its politics, but it's essentially a propaganda, like a pro union propaganda. Sure. Film. The, the whole idea of the movie is that this, uh, um, um, Mr. Lang's Monsieur Lang's boss is an evil, greedy, uncaring capitalist, you know, business owner, magazine owner, uh, Mr. Lang, Monsieur Lang writes for the magazine. And when he, uh, leaves, um, the, when he's out of the picture for a while, for whatever reason, I don't want to say why. Um, and the employees unionize everything becomes awesome for all of them immediately. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, uh, I'm like, yeah, it's like well. a Christian film where somebody converts and <laughs> yeah. nothing ever goes wrong. Yeah. And that, I mean the, it, the movie's well, well made and definitely a joy to, to watch cause it's John Renoir and he really knew what he was doing. Uh, no secret there. Um, but it does seem like it's, it does seem kind of like thin soup in a lot of, a lot of ways. One thing I really liked about the, I like that phrase. I'll tell you that. Um, Oh, I'm not definitely not the first person to use that. Mm. Um, but one thing I really liked actually about the way that the plot unfolds is that it has a, it has a bookend mm-hmm. where, uh, Monsieur Lang and his girlfriend are, out in the countryside looking for a place to hide. Yes. Uh, they check into like a inn that has a pub attached to it, like a tavern, or whatever attached to it. And he immediately falls asleep. And we learn like the, the people, the, the locals hang out at the tavern and like, that's the guy that talking about on the radio. He killed yeah. someone and the girlfriend comes out and basically is like, I want you to hide us from the authorities. Let me give you the story of how this person came to have killed yeah. someone. And then we get the story that way. And what, so what that means is that this is a twi- essentially a twist on the murder mystery where we know who the killer is, yeah. not who the victim is. Yeah. That's re- And that's really interesting. But, um, but I don't want to go into how it plays out, who the, who the victim ends up, ends up being. It becomes, it seems obvious and then like, Oh, maybe not. And then maybe it is uh, anyway. 
uh, I like that part of it a lot. I like the level of performance. I, I definitely like the sense of place, the the idea, you know, Renoir's depiction of a working class neighborhood um, is definitely very um, idealistic, but also very welcoming. And, you know, there's a great sense of community. I like it, it was, it's a kind of a crummy corner of the city or whatever, but it's a place that you would want to spend time because everyone's like kind of, friendly and you know mm-hmm. hanging out and there's dogs everywhere i don't know if you remember this but i like, do not recall i don't recall most of the film to be honest with you um yeah it seems like that's one of the main signifiers that this is a happy part of the world is that everyone has a pet dog who's just running around yapping and having fun it's interesting like dogs running around like a bunch of dogs running around is either an indication of extreme happiness or right. extreme uh sadness yeah but the, yeah these aren't like scavenger dogs these are yeah. pets and they're just having they're just they're i would say gambling not gambling gam gambling gambling yeah. got it yes yeah uh, anyway, so that's, uh, the restoration's coming out in a couple of theater, at least here in Los Angeles. It's, it's, uh, it's playing. I assume it's getting a Blu-ray release soon. I'm, I'm assuming, yeah, usually when this sort of thing happens, it's because someone is, yeah. uh, putting out a new, um, Blu-ray of it. So, uh, what's next for you? Okay. So having watched Sherlock Holmes on the plane, it got me thinking about Guy Ritchie and realizing that I liked, um, Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels. I like Snatch. There are a few others. There are a few of his films I didn't see, but I did like The Man from Uncle and his Sherlock Holmes films. And I thought, like, I wonder if I'm just a Guy Ritchie fan. I better watch King Arthur Legend of the Sword and find out. <laughs> no. Uh, no, I guess I still am. But uh, boy, that movie is. Uh, really? I was excited, interested. I, years ago when we were at SMS, um, I took a. That's an, uh, Southwest Missouri State, which yes. is not called that anymore. It's called MSU, Missouri State University. Boo. Still um, the Bears? I believe so, yes. Yeah. And Lady Bears? Yeah. <laughs> that's good, yeah, that's true. Yeah. I feel like they probably could have gotten rid of that at this point, right? I hope so. They can just, they like, can just all be bears. Yeah. It's fine. Um, but over the year that we were there, the, like the lady bears basketball team was actually like really like national. Yeah, they like did really, really well. good. Um, and so there was a lot of the one year that I was at that school, there was a lot of talk about the lady bears, <laughs> which is fun to say now that I think about it. it. Is. Um, so, uh, I took a, an Arthurian myth class, which was mm. actually one of my, one of my favorite classes. Um, and so I'm just, I'm just generally interested in King Arthur stuff. Um, I feel like it has never been well adapted. Uh, Excalibur might be the, the most interesting, um, because yeah, it is so willing to, <laughs> it's so willing to be dark, uh, and weird mm-hmm, because yeah. like when we think of Camelot and King Arthur, we think of like, Oh, what a wonderful place. Like these characters are deeply flawed and they make terrible mistakes. Like King Arthur's own son comes back and kills him. Like yeah. it's, it's rough stuff. But, um, but yeah, so uh, what's interesting is that this particular telling of King Arthur, whether it be the like the tone, the nature of Arthur himself, his backstory, everything about it, short of the mystical elements, everything about it screams Robin Hood, not King Arthur. It's very strange. And mm. it made me, I'll say this, it made me be like, ah, you know what? I think I'd enjoy Guy Ritchie Robin Hood film. <laughs> I don't enjoy this. Um, what but, was the last Robin Hood movie? Well, there was Ridley Scott's in 2010. Oh, that's right. Um, I forgot about that. As, okay. as well you should have. Um, and there's a BBC series. 
There was that I before that probably like 2008. Yeah, and I remember hearing it was not very good. I think I might have watched the first episode. Um, anyway, but yeah, and so I feel like uh, tonally, it's just uh, the movie's all over the place. He's trying to bring his very modern sensibilities to it as he does with Sherlock Holmes, but it just doesn't quite fit. And uh, the movie has its moments here and there, but just there aren't very many of them. Jude Law is the villain and does a really great job. And and uh, one thing that I do like if, uh, conceptually is, you know, there's there's the lady in the lake, you know, mm-hmm. that gives Arthur the sword. And Jude Law as the villain has his own like there's like a dark cave and there's like water in it. And he has his own lady in the lake. And it is this large Ursula from uh, Little Mermaid type who just like slithers on and is just like so decadent mm-hmm. and basically just says like, I can give you tremendous power, but you need to spill the blood of someone you love. And so it's like the, the idea that they, that both like the good and the bad have this. And one is all about cool. like, you know, sacrificing for your own gain and all that. So it's uh, stuff like that is interesting. I just yeah. feel like the film in general, um, it just isn't that good. Um, now, uh, I, I teased this a little bit on the episode a couple weeks ago with, uh, with Susan Burke because it took me forever to get through this movie. And I might have more movies this week if it weren't for the fact that I watched all four hours of Amir Barlev's Long Strange Trip, a okay. documentary about the Grateful Dead. All right. Amir Barlev is very good at putting together uh, information. There's a lot of uh, <laughs> interesting stuff. I... I, I don't care about the Grateful Dead. I, mean, I think I might hate the Grateful Dead more <laughs> having watched this movie. I, that than I, I believe, yeah, uh, than I did before. I just I don't I don't get it. I don't get the appeal of any of this. And the movie doesn't. It, 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 in a way, it kind of confirms a lot. Um, I would say one thing that it does um, well is I think um, in terms of the many many people it interviewed. That that were interviewed, uh, from obviously you know members of the Grateful Dead mm-hmm. um, to roadies and then to like deadheads or whatever. I think Amir Barlev knew that it's better to like we don't need to focus on like the famous people like Al Franken who's in the news for other reasons. All of a sudden, yeah. um, turns out turns out being a Grateful Dead is only a Grateful Dead fan is only the second grossest thing about Al, Frank, Al Franken. <laughs> um, um, like he's one of the interview subjects, but he's kind of barely in it. Whereas this other deadhead that you've never met, but who is incredibly eloquent and like poetic about his time, um, following the dead around is, is in a bunch. And yeah, like, uh, you know, I mean, it seems like a weird thing to say about a guy who couldn't keep his movie, you know, who barely kept his movie under four hours, but, uh, he knows how to select the right footage. Yeah. Um, and so it's, you know, it's, it's an entertaining watch, but there's, it's just so hard for me to buy into any of it. That's the thing about any of those rock docs or, or, or concert films is just like, it's like the one subject that great filmmaking just will not make up for. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, I mean, like I've, anything can be interesting, but somehow because it's about music, which is an, a whole other art form. And I don't know why I like what I like and what I don't. Right. Yeah. And this is not going to turn me. But I, I, I've said multiple times on this podcast and on the movie journals, like I'm often bored by rock docs about bands that I already know I like. So right. I guess a part of me was like, maybe it'll work this time. Maybe yeah. it takes me being a cinephile to learn how to approach the Grateful Dead. Um, and it uh, it didn't work. I would say the thing it did most effectively was near the end. Um 
you know, the, the big hole, obviously in terms of people being interviewed is Jerry Garcia because he's yeah. he died. Uh, and I would say near the end, like showing how much obviously being like making music and being in the Grateful Dead was key to Jerry Garcia, but it was also it, it was like, it was something he, he couldn't live without, but it was also a prison for him yeah. to like, to take a, a guy whose whole thing is to be open and welcome everyone in yeah. and then to make him so famous or like so adored by a group, certain group of people that he has to be shut off from them. Yeah. Um, because they're seeing him as everything he doesn't want to be, yeah. you know, he like he's Jerry Garcia was like reflexively deeply anti-authority and to have a bunch of people looking at him as a sort of Messiah almost yeah. uh, is counter to everything that he stood for. And you can kind of see the, you know, I think one, I can't remember which, if it's Phil Lesh or, you know, one of the other members, but they referred to Jerry Garcia's death as pretty much a suicide, even though it, hmm. it wasn't, he had a heart attack, but yeah. like um, that his, that, 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 that was his only way out yeah. uh, of the, the thing that he'd, built that was something that he loved and wanted to make. And that ended up being the hardest thing about his life. And the movie also doesn't shy away from the fact that he could be a real shit, yeah. uh, especially when he was using, um, and, and using heroin, like, yeah. when, you know, starting in the, you know, the band started in the sixties and it was all, um, you know, uh, acid and stuff. And then they see like, you can kind of track the, progression of the band by the drugs you yeah. know it's like weed and acid at first and then like in the 70s before they took their they took like a break between 74 and 79 i guess or something okay. um like it starts to get real coke heavy and then when they came back and became big like really big in the 80s which is when the whole like deadhead thing really took root is in the 80s uh it became heroin and so you can kind of see the band kind of getting getting bigger or at least like they're following getting more fervent um, while the band itself is getting more sick because of the, the type of drugs they're using. Hmm. Um, but I, way too much of that comes near the end. Um, yeah. mo- most of it is just like, it just, it just seems like people buying into the idea of this band as a myth. And I'm sure the bands that I love feel that way to me. So I kind of understand, but I don't, specifically understand mm-hmm. what the appeal of the Grateful Dead is. Two things about the Grateful Dead. Number one, when I was a kid and I saw any images, not of the band itself, but of the images they put out, like of the skeletons, you uh-huh. know, like the patriotic skeleton on skilts or, on stilts or whatever. Uh-huh. Um, I remember thinking like, like, Oh, that's scary. Like, I wonder what the, what the music is. And then I hear it. I'm like that, this doesn't fit. <laughs> the two things I don't know why these yeah. things have gone together. Um, whereas metal, like I get why metal is like very, yeah. you know, uh, scary and stuff. Um, the other thing is I remember one of the first stand up bits I ever remembered because I thought it was so good was from the very first comics come home, which was a Boston based yeah. charity thing. And it was Nick DiPaolo. And, you know, he has a rather abrasive uh, delivery style and he, uh, <laughs> and Jerry Garcia had just died mm-hmm. and he said, he goes, Jerry Garcia is dead. Yeah. Who would have thought that health nut would kick off early? Huh? <laughs> so, <laughs> he goes, he's 55. I thought I was in his late hundreds for Christ's sake. <laughs> Guy lived That's on lighter fluid and heroin for 25 years. Yeah. Who would have thought his heart would pop like a zit? And, uh, like just that, yeah. that constant angry New York thing. But, uh, but I remember like just the, 
the the dismissal of a person's death really struck me and i rem- and i still remember it so like anytime at, the, at this point i think more about that bit when i hear about jerry <laughs> garcia than i do the actual guy um oh, would you recommend the documentary um i mean if you know if you got I guess the time I, yeah if you have the time i guess but I, I, really only if you like the grateful dead i can't yeah um, but apparently one thing that's very interesting to movie fans, apparently Jerry Garcia was obsessed with, he liked old horror movies in general, but Frankenstein in particular. Mm. And there are clips from Frankenstein throughout the four, the four hours of, that's cool. of, of the movie. Did it make you just want to watch Frankenstein? <laughs> yeah. <it> yeah. Did. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. So next up for me, uh, the moment I got back in, there was a movie I was very much looking forward to and I'm sorry. Yeah, it's a big blockbuster, but I was excited anyway, which is Thor Ragnarok. Um, so I saw it the day I got back. Um, and I, it's Taika Waititi, uh, the director whose previous work I've enjoyed. And the film, uh, delivered on a number of levels, all the things that, you know, it's a wonderful use of color. It just feels so vibrant and alive. Whereas I think certainly Thor, the dark world did not feel that way. Um, the, the, the humor is there. I do think Chris Hemsworth is showing himself to be a very, very capable leading man. His ability to like, you know, juggle like the weight of, you know, to carry the movie and the, and the emotional weight of it while also being funny. And, you know, often he has to pivot between one or the other. Um, he does it very, very well, all while delivering a very specific brand of dialogue. You know, do you think he's the best Chris? You know, well, okay, the, uh, you got your you got your Chris Pine. Yeah, you got it's Pine Pratt Hemsworth Evans. Okay, those those are your Chris's. Is he the best Chris? Uh, I do like Chris. I think Chris Evans is probably the best yeah. Chris of those. I'm, uh, I'm I'm Team Pine. I think Pine, they're all good. I like all of them, but yeah. I uh, Chris Evans in Snowpiercer and Sunshine. Uh, and cellular, like I think he's he's a a, yeah. a a very good actor who I think has we've not seen everything from him yet. Um, but Although Chris, Chris Pine, Pine is really good in Hell or High, High Water. Water, yeah, and he's good in Wonder Woman. He is, and I also teared up like a dork when Common performed Glory at the at the at the Oscars. <laughs> and so <laughs> those are like the three things Chris Pine is best known for. And I he's think good he was in, in a Star Trek movie, uh, but uh, he's good in those, those as well. Yes. Those, I haven't actually seen any of those. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm team pine. Okay. Um, I like all of them and I do think that, uh, I mean, here's the thing. Chris Pratt in parks and rec is the best of all of them. Like his dopey character is just, uh, delightful. Um, like there's a scene where he, uh, he's standing on a, on a wheeled office chair, uh, trying to, and he's about to like hammer a nail into the wall and like the wheels are like going Uh and you, and everything is set up that like, he's just going to fall. And then he just sneezes and bashes his head into the wall (laughs) and falls down. And that's what gives him the concussion. And it's a wonderful (laughs) bit of physical comedy. Um, anyway, so what was I saying? Oh yeah. Thor Ragnarok. Um, the humor is, is, is solid. I, you know, the story is, it doesn't matter how off the beaten path the tone might be or how original the characters might seem. 
these stories, especially like the cosmic Marvel ones, they all just kind of fall into the same thing. And Kate Blanchett does what she can with her character, but she's really not that different than Christopher Eccleston or Lee Pace or any of the other like cosmic villains, yeah. except for Loki. But he, you know, when he, at this point, we have a lot of uh, a long relationship with that character. And so they do good stuff with him. Uh, Jeff Goldblum uh, is clearly they just said, be as Jeff Goldblum mm-hmm. as you can be. And he does. And it's very funny. And he is a villain, but he's a very low stakes villain. Um, and the the uh, the post the the final post credit scene is his and it ends on a pretty big for me a pretty big laugh line that is just delightful um i'm very glad i saw the film i think the story is conventional i think the action is pretty boring um for the most part like at this point you either need to direct these films direct the action with a certain fluidity like joss whedon did in the avengers or you need to find some new spin on it like scott derrickson did with uh dr Mm -hmm. strange like after a while like these characters defying gravity and just taking punch after punch without any real physical damage it gets tiresome and i don't really care now um i haven't seen the movie but i'll ask you the same but there's been talk about this okay so i'll ask you the same question i asked scott um i guess last week or whatever um do you think they should have kept hulk out of the marketing yes Absolutely. Okay. <laughs> because, because the film does not, is not treated That's my as though it's a, as though we all know he's there. Like the, the enemy that Thor is going to go up against, like the champion is like, Oh my gosh, this is going to be a big deal. And then when it's revealed, it's Hulk, like Chris Evans response of like, Chris yeah, Hemsworth. Oh yeah, whatever. <laughs> um, Christopher Lee's response, <laughs> uh, is this big boisterous. Yes. Because like, I was so scared and it's just this guy I know like that should have been the audience's response. Yeah, but it wasn't. We all knew what was coming. And so it actually kind of makes the movie. It robs it of stakes when all these characters are just so breathless about this champion that he has to fight. And we was like, well, it's Hulk. It's going to be fine. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, I think that was a big mistake on Marvel's part, even if Uh, that poster is great. I haven't seen the poster. Oh, it's really, it's really well put together and Hulk factors into it uh, considerably. Yeah. They probably did sell more tickets because people knew Hulk was in it. Uh, possibly. Yeah. Um, all right. Moving on to Sean Baker's, the Florida project. Okay. Um, you haven't seen it yet, right? I have not. Uh, he, Sean Baker might be just the most, Real quick, most <laughs> that is the Thor. Poster. Oh, that's awesome! Pretty yeah. good, right? Yeah. Um, Sorry about that. I'm trying to think what the word is here. He is the the most gracefully humanistic director that I can think of. Like the Florida Project is a movie that is about very poor people. Okay. The, but in a way, it also makes it clear that they're not necessarily uncommonly poor. Like people who are this po- this poor are a part of America mm-hmm. uh, that we don't normally see in the movies. When we do, there's a tragedy to it. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And the Florida Project. I mean, terrible things do happen in this movie. We see how tenuous their all the characters' safety is, um, but. It's a movie that is full of life. It's about life. Like, this is what life is for these characters, and they don't spend all day, every day, 
miserable. Like it's their life. And especially since the main characters are kids, um, the, this main actress, I've already forgotten her name. Uh, Haley Lou Richardson. Is it her? Haley Lou okay. Richardson. Um, the character's name is Mooney. I can't remember the girl's name. Uh, I don't know. I mean, it has to be like to get this good a performance out of someone as young, like a six year old. Yeah. Like you have to give the, a lot of the credit to Sean Baker to be able to make a non actor. Yeah. You know, just like last year with, uh, you had American honey where, um, uh, what was her name? Uh, Sasha something. I can't remember who the woman's name was. Um, the young woman, um, a non actor gives an amazing role or gives an amazing performance. You have to, you have to say at a certain point, especially since Sean Baker also used a lot of non-actors in Tangerine, uh, to, to great effect. Um, clearly he's got a touch <laughs> with mm-hmm. this, with this sort of thing. Um, Brooklyn Prince is the girl's name. Um, in terms of the, the story, it's really just, is kind of just a slice of life movie. It's, um, you know, it's, it just takes place over the course of uh, a summer, you know, so the kids aren't in school. They live in a hotel, uh, I guess a motel, yeah. um, down the road from Disney world in mm-hmm. Orlando. Um, and, and, um, Willem Dafoe is the, um, the, the hotel manager. Um, and he's, uh, obviously, I mean, all, all the awards talk is well, well earned. Um, he also, the, the movie just never, there's nothing, there's nothing intri- contrived about the movie at all. It mm-hmm. feels like, like even him being this nice, caring hotel manager to this, you know, hundreds, uh, you know, there's probably a hundred rooms in this place that are pretty much all, uh, you know, people who can't afford uh, apartments or, you know, mm-hmm. who are living, you know, week to week, if not day to day. Um, the idea that he's a caring guy is played realistically. He's not an angel at no. all. And he gets frustrated with them. Um, and he has his own problems. We get a, we get a sense of, um, um, through a couple of scenes, uh, with, there's only a few actors in it that, uh, there's uh, other than Willem Dafoe actors you'd recognize. Um, Caleb Landry Jones plays Willem Dafoe's son. Okay. Um, and then there's one scene with Macon Blair, um, that I won't, uh, I won't say who he plays. Um, not a great guy. Okay. Um, uh, so, so even the nice guy, like there's no character in the movie who isn't treated respectfully and honestly as a full human being. Um, but most of it takes place through the eyes of this six year old girl and her friends. And even though they get up to behavior that in another type of movie would be, can you believe what these six year olds are getting up to? You know, like this is so dangerous or, you know, why are the parents not looking after them? But that's not how we experience it as the audience. We're like, yeah, this is fun. Let's go, you know, run through this complex of, abandoned condo condominiums, you know, yeah. and like break mirrors and shit. Like it's fucking fun. Uh, and, and so much of the movie feels like that. Um, such a way that when things do get heavy, um, it, 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 it hurts, but it's still a movie that loves life and is actually a- absolutely beautiful to look at. And really like, Willem Dafoe is just, I don't want to like make this all about, 
awards. Right. But like, like kind of like you were talking about with Woody Harrelson, like I would like to see someone get an award, not for playing like, for showing us some asshole warts, warts and all, you know, yeah. like for playing a truly decent guy. That was my, that was my whole thing about Mark Ruffalo and Foxcatcher. Like he was up for supporting actor and yet, and it went to JK Simmons who was great. But my vote in the BPs was Mark <laughs> Ruffalo because I thought he, he made this, he took this decent guy and made him remarkably complex while still fundamentally decent. And I mean, speaking of awards, like Defoe is getting all the buzz at this point. Good. Like he was my first pick in the draft. I didn't get him. Uh, Um, Same deal. Yeah. And just, I'm sure it was for, for most people, either him or Gary Oldman. Um, and those were the first two, those are the first two picks. Um, Gary Oldman. Yes. Oh yeah. Gary Oldman was my first that I was trying in our draft. Right. Um, but for the supporting actor category, Roman Defoe was my first. Yeah. And it's, uh, and I'm, I'm very excited that Willem Defoe, can and quite possibly will get an Oscar. I know it sounds weird, but it's just like he's been nominated before. Like he, he's what was he nominated for platoon. Okay. And shadow of the vampire, like very different performances, mm-hmm. but just, he's a guy who, who plays grotesque so often yeah. that for him Although to play a good just guy in platoon, he is, but he's also, uh, transcendent in the way like he's a Christ figure. He's right. all that. So like there's a certain over the top quality to his character. He's certainly not grotesque, but since then he's become yeah. known as that sort of thing. And for him to play just like this working class, blue collar, nice guy. Yeah. It's not, I'm, I'm thrilled. I can't yeah. wait to see the film. Yeah. And I mean, as I'm happy for, cause Gary Oldman's also never won an, right. an Oscar, which I'll, uh, I'll talk about something in a little bit. Okay. Um, but, uh, and I'm ha- so the idea that he's going to, I'm happy for him as well, but yeah. I think, and he's also great in darkest hour, but, um, I'm definitely more happy or will be more happy for Willem Dafoe. Yeah. <laughs> um, because I think the idea is that to me, he's playing a character that wouldn't normally win uh, yeah. someone an Oscar, but he's so good. It's like when I was, can't ignore it. It's like when I was excited that Robert Forster was nominated for Jackie Brown. Mm-hmm. Like, and the thing is about like with Gary Oldman, yes, he's a wonderful actor, but I think all of us just sort of assumed at some point he would, cause he's the type Willem Dafoe, despite the nom- past nominations, isn't necessarily the type. And so it's uh, very exciting yeah. uh, that this could, and I do hope will happen. Yeah. Um, do you remember when he was on fishing with John? Oh yeah. <laughs> so Absolutely. So Absolutely. Um, and one of my favorite things, <laughs> fishing with John is delightful and it's also great with John Lurie's commentary. Right. Um, and so at one point, um, John Lurie drops his glove accidentally drops his glove into the the ice That's right. and gra- grabs it and like puts it back on. But it, by this time it's already so cold outside and the glove is now wet. And now his, his, his hand is just losing any, like all feeling immediately. And he's like, he goes, I'm losing feeling in my hand. And then I was like, it's just like to, to build a fire, you know, that Jack London story. And then in the, in the commentary, uh, in the commentary, John Larry's like, why is he not more worried about my hand? <laughs> uh, I just need to watch that episode now. Yeah. Um, all right. Um, what's up next? Okay. So the last one for me, uh, I saw it last night, uh, is Zack Snyder's justice league. Oh boy. Okay. 
It's not terrible. There's some good performances in there. That that I think is what this series is going to be built on is good performances of characters that are just stranded in the middle of shit. And I feel bad for everybody involved. Um, I think Ben Affleck is faring quite well. Uh, it was nice to see Ezra Miller in, in that type of character. I'm not used to seeing that. Um, I think that uh, I, a lot of this you can read in my review. It's on the website. But uh, for you know, when DC announced that like oh, they're going to do a different thing than what Marvel was doing, Marvel released several individual films and then put them all together for the Avengers, and DC like did. Man of Steel, and then it did Batman v Superman, which incorporated Batman and Wonder Woman, and it brought in Doomsday. Like it brought in all this stuff, and it's like, okay, so I guess this is what they're doing. And then they did essentially a prequel for Wonder Woman, and now, okay, now it's all of them, which means they have to introduce Aquaman, Cyborg, uh, the Flash, and I was frustrated, but I also thought, like, I'll reserve judgment on their plan until justice league comes out and hey, who knows, maybe it'll turn out fine. Ugh, <laughs> like it's cyborg should have had his own movie. Aquaman absolutely should have had his own and movie. He will. And he will. They will now. That's fine. Well, Except, no, it's already on the December, 2018. Oh, okay. Aquaman, I think, well, uh, here's the problem with doing it in that order is in order to establish the character enough for us to care about him, they have to shoehorn in, so much exposition. They just have to bring everything to a halt to introduce him to us. It's like, that's what the other movie is for. You do that. Flash does not necessarily need his own movie. I'll say that he, he operates or at least not before this after this. Absolutely. But not before. And it just like it, it, that fundamental lack of understanding of why Marvel did what they did the way they did, um, is all over this film. Like just, the villain shows up. We have no association with him at all. He couldn't be, he's exactly like Kate Blanchard or any other cosmic villain mm-hmm. except for Loki because we'd seen Loki before. This guy shows up. He's a big bad voiced, uh, well by Siren Hines. Um, but the character is CG and who cares? Who cares? Um, and what he's doing is he's seeking out these these three boxes called mother boxes. And when you put them all together, you put yeah, when you put them all together. You put them on your gauntlet. Oh shit! I'm suddenly thinking something else. Um, it's it's that over and over again. It's ridiculous how much this thing owes to other movies and acts as though it's so important. Like I'm so tired of world domination. You know. Yeah. So like, so that's the thing is. There's so much bad. The movie doesn't look very good. Danny Elfman does the score and gets a little bit of Danny Elfman stuff in there, including, by the way, more than a bit than a hint of his old Batman theme, like on purpose, which is kind yeah, of fun. I think I heard that. Um, somewhere. And so, but, it, but the film even drags his score down into general mediocrity and, and it's, it really, the cast is, is what elevates it and they have some good chemistry. I have to assume Joss Whedon is a part of that. Um, but by and large, like this series is just has wonder woman was pretty good. And even that by the end, kind of just devolved into a standard superhero thing, even though I like David Thewlis and I like, yeah, but I think it plays into the theme of the character better. Yes, there. Absolutely. Like you have to have an emotional investment. And I think we do, which is exciting. Um, but Aside from that, like DC has just not stepped right 
Cause I also forgot about suicide squad, which is a mess. Um, and I don't, I don't think it's worth, I don't think it's worth seeing. Um, except I almost feel like go see it just so the cast can feel good about themselves. Cause they're doing good work. It's unfortunate that they're not in a better film. All right. Um, speaking of not very good films now, you, uh, people have been listening to the movie journal in recent months know that I've been, uh, dipping my toes occasionally into, um, seventies sexploitation, um, yeah. with some pretty good results. The witch who came from the sea is sure. amazing. Pretty maids all in a row is a very interesting movie. Uh, I stepped wrong this week. Okay. I watched uh, a film by a 1977 film by John Hayes with the enticing title jailbait babysitter. Um, and I think I got it, <laughs> but you died. It's so stupid. The movie, it goes <laughs> like, it starts about like this girl who's a babysitter. Who's like dating an older guy. Like she's in high school is dating an older guy. He wants to have sex. She wants to be, uh, a, um, wants to stay a virgin. And then his friend like tries to rape her. And so she runs away, not just from them, but like from home. And, <laughs> like she kind of overcorrects there finds like this like wealthy sort of uh liberated free love prostitute woman so she moves in with that woman who is like maybe grooming her to become a prostitute since so she doesn't like that so then she goes back to her boyfriend who's been a dick the whole time but suddenly he's seen the error of, her, of his ways or whatever and then and then someone tries to rape her again. And that's like the whole movie. It's, it's almost Dickensian the way she's bouncing from <laughs> one place to another. Yeah. Uh, but it, it almost feels like, I mean, the, 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 the story is not important clearly like it. And yet those are such big choices. Yeah. Like the story only exists to see her and other women in various states of undress. That's the whole reason the movie exists. Yeah. And yet, the ways that it's getting there are way more drastic than it needs to be. Like we don't need to have multiple attempted rapes. That's not what this movie's about. This is supposed yeah. to be some dumb, like exploitation movie. Yeah. Why are we seeing this? And why is there this whole plot line about the, the prostitute when that's like, doesn't end up being, she doesn't well, that change at least because plays, of it. That she, at least plays more into the exploitation thing, but like the right. rape thing, I guess people f- at the time found that titillating. But it's like, yeah, but at the same time, are, are, do you feel like the film wants you to be kind of on board with it or no, condemn no, it or both? No, very much not. You're okay. not supposed to be. Because it's like, there's, but it's, it's almost like, so her boyfriend is a shithead, okay. but his friend like is Willem worse. Like Willem Dafoe. <laughs> what? Like Willem Dafoe. Uh, Willem Dafoe uh, is that's a shithead? That's the Benson uh, Douglas oh, movies from right. many, many years that's ago. Right. That's what he would sign off with. I, I'm sorry. Um, I forgot about that. Um, uh, the joke being that he's clearly not. Yes. Um, anyway. Um, but it's like the, is it almost, it almost felt like, well, we painted ourselves in the, into a corner by having her love interest be an asshole. Yeah. Let's have his friend be an even bigger asshole just to make him look good in comparison. Yeah. That's kind of what it felt like to me. Don't watch it. It's really stupid. Okay. Um, don't and, watch Joe babysitter. Okay. Do last, watch. What's that? And last, last for me, a movie that I think you've seen. Okay. Pretty sure you saw it when it came out. Um, uh, and, uh, it got, I think kind of mixed reviews and had some, 
some backlash, but uh, it turns out I fucking love this movie. I watched Sofia Coppola's The Beguiled. It is uh, high on my list. It's I don't so want to ruin good. anything. Yeah. It's high on my list. Okay, okay. Um, it's so good. I, I, I don't think I was prepared. And I also, honestly, I haven't seen... That's not true. I saw The Bling Ring. But there's a lot of Sofia Coppola that I've mm. missed. Um, I didn't see Marie Antoinette. I didn't see the Stephen Dorff one. Somewhere. Somewhere. Um, is there another one in there that I'm missing? Uh, I don't think so. Okay. Um, I've seen all of them. She is, I guess at this point, one of my favorite filmmakers. Uh, well, yeah, then, um, then it makes sense that you like this so much, but I, yeah, I, I really, really loved it. Um, it has a great, uh, uh, it, it was funnier than I expected it to be. There's a lot of laughs, but it's yeah. also incredibly tense. Yeah. Um, and, I just liked how much, I mean, certainly with, with Florida Project, I, I, I talked about point of view and this is the, the movie that really plays with your point of view. Like it mostly regards John, the mm-hmm. one man, in the, movie, the Colin Farrell character um, from, I feel like we don't get a lot of his point of view. Even when we're alone with him, we're looking at him. Yeah. The camera the is way that, fascinated with him. Uh, yeah. And so we're seeing him the way the women are, but then as the story progresses, as things get more, more complicated, obviously there's what, there's seven women in the house, mm-hmm. women and girls in the house. Um, and so each of them start to see him in different ways. Yeah. And then Sophia Copley even plays with that by, um, implying and then pretty much making it clear that there are interaction interactions that we're not, seeing yeah that there there are relations are building between john and various other women that we're only seeing a little bit of at a time because of course the other women don't know what what he's saying to them um and if the movie were from his point of view we'd we'd see all of it we'd see everything important but um it allows us to get to something that things that feel like like essentially a plot twist. Yeah. Um, because we have, because Sophia Coppola has been selective about what information she wants to, to, to give us. Um, and, uh, I, I really, yeah, I just really, um, really enjoyed that, that sort of storytelling. I love the way it looks. Um, uh, I love, uh, I, I'm a, such a sucker for, it's like an artsy thing now. I feel like for American independent filmmakers to shoot movies in one, six, six mm. aspect ratio yeah. uh, to go back to like, uh, mid-century Europe, like sixties, seventies European films. Yeah. Um, but it works for me. I, it definitely works in this movie. I, I like the, the way the movie looks. I love the music by Phoenix. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. I felt like there was something else I was, I was going to say, but, um, the scene with the apple pie is so funny. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, there was some, Oh, okay. And then, okay. I loved it. So this was a, a thing that I got invited to the focus features is doing for, uh, it was like a, for your consideration thing where there was a, it was like a 10 AM screening, but then there was a brunch afterwards and it was like, I, I, I was supposed to go with, with Natalie and then she, um, couldn't make it. So I ended up going alone and I didn't, I was hoping there'd be someone else that I knew there. There wasn't. So I kind of hung out at the brunch for a little bit. Um, tried to get drunk, but the, uh, the mimosas were too weak. <laughs> I was trying and I was like, I'm attracting attention. I'm like down for mimosas and I'm not even feeling a thing. Um, but I basically I just eavesdropped some other people. And these are like, these are people who like fancy themselves probably industry insiders. So there's a lot of 
awards talk. Yeah. It was, oh, <laughs> it's every like stereotype. Can you give me oh, an example? Here's well, the, here's the two things that I definitely took away soon. Everyone will know how to pronounce Sir Ronan's name. That was, uh, that was an insight. And then the one that really made me roll my eyes was come on. Gary Oldman needs to win already. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, don't get me wrong. I've, I've heard that sentiment right and left, but there's something but it, it about it. Annoys like, me. It's annoyed me every time I've, I've heard it too. Yeah. It's like no one, it doesn't work like that, except it does. If you're Martin Scorsese and you direct the departed, uh, yeah. you know, it's like, yeah, Peter O'Toole never won. All right. Yeah. <laughs> Life's not fair sometimes. Um, anyway, but, uh, food was really good at the, they had a little thing that was like, from a distance, it looked like, oh, there's bruschetta, you know, the... Sure. And then you walk and you pick it up and you realize, oh, no, because this is brunch, it's a little hash brown patty with, like, a salsa on top. So mm. it's essentially hash browns and salsa that looked like bruschetta, and it was delicious. You get that salsa off of there, and I'm talking, now you're talking. <laughs> um, yeah, it's... I, I can't say enough good things about The Beguiled. It is a film I, I adore. I wasn't... I, I did not know what to expect walking in. I thankfully did not watch the trailer, which spoils a lot of it. Not that it's a spoilery type of thing. Like it's a yeah. mood. It's very much a mood type film. Um, but I just love the idea that like, like I wrote a really long review of it because like I, I need is I need a lot of words. Um, and even then I feel like I can't quite capture what is so ethereal about this film and the way just everybody, uh, he's kind of the scoundrel, but everybody's kind of using each other. Everyone is using, it's like everyone wants some kind of escape. He wants to escape from the war. They want to escape from the house and everybody just sees each other as some means of escape. Mm-hmm. And that's all. Yeah. And it's, it's yeah, a, a really, really marvelous film. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Uh, that's it for movies. I don't have, I'm not going to talk about any TV. We've been going long enough. You have TV to talk about? Uh, yeah. Uh, survivor. I'm, I'm, I actually am not caught up with it. I missed several episodes, but, uh, but I'm actually liking, uh, this season a fair amount. The people that I'm enjoying are sticking around, which is uh, very exciting. Always but, good. uh, I did, speaking of catching up, I watched the David S pumpkins Halloween special, okay. which I enjoyed. Um, I think there's a couple of jokes that don't quite land and it's arguable whether this premise can stretch to 22 minutes, but for the most part it does. And the big, you know, the big thing about David pumpkins is that you don't know anything about him and he gives you nothing. And they really commit to that. Like at one point he sings like he sings a song, like all these jack-o'-lanterns like start floating and singing and it sounds a little bit haunting and creepy and he sings this song about himself but every detail he gives could apply to every single person in the world (laughs) um it's it's marvelous and then like uh then there's a scene where you know there are these bullies that uh that have been uh going after like the main character like this little kid and so pumpkins decides he's going to terrorize them with a song and the music like builds and then he, he, they're running and he's in front of them and he goes, and then they like run away and the music keeps building, but he doesn't, he never sings. And the kids themselves like, it feels like he keeps, feels like he keeps building and like he's going to sing, but he's not, which is more disconcerting than if he were to sing. Uh, and like that sequence is, is delightful. And, also the way they captured just the constant demented smile of Tom <laughs> Hanks is, is pretty great. Um, yeah, I just, uh, I enjoyed it. Uh, I didn't necessarily love it, but I enjoyed it quite a bit. 
I think it, it does a pretty good job of capturing the the tone of the of the sketch, although not nearly as good as sure. the sketch. Of course, how could it be? Uh, anything else? Um, I think that's about it. I would encourage people if you are football fans, uh, check out the old pigskin. The old ass <laughs> was. I came back to Wayne. <laughs> I, I came back to Wayne Manor one summer. So this is based, but I don't know if you want to tell the uh, listener about why the football thing was a part of it. It was because of my nickname. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I don't know. If we talk, uh, we've talked. We've talked about it. Your okay, yeah. initials are T D Smith. So our former roommate Cole, uh, composer of the Battleship Retention uh, and Battleship Retention movie journal themes. Mm-hmm. Um, used to call you Touchdown. Yeah. And you were gone for a whole summer. It was yes. just me and Cole. And the day you were coming back, Cole made a banner out of just a ro- just paper towels. Yeah. He just like rolled it out long enough and wrote like "Welcome Home Touchdown" or something like that. Yeah. And the funniest thing is he had like little like stick figures playing football, and one of them was saying like little thought was, like speech bubble was saying, "Pass me the pigskin, please." <laughs> Yes, it was uh, quite delightful. Um, anyway, so uh, yeah, of course, now if I hear pigskin, that's the first thing uh-huh. my mind goes to that and the uh, delightful Calvin and Hobbes uh, uh, panel. But um, no, uh, speaking of, I've spoken of him before, friend of the show, Jason Eakin, he has made a video called Tom Brady Philosophy of the Goat, which you can actually find at battleshipretention.com if you click on video. I will say that the NFL being shitty as it is, it is not allowing you to see the film, uh, to see his, his video embedded. You can watch it on YouTube, but you can't watch it embedded in on BP, Facebook or anything like that. It has not stopped people from finding it though. It actually, uh, it was kind of slow going and then it really picked up. People found it and it's got like 16,000 views at the moment, which is, you know, a big deal for, uh, you know, um, but it's really good. And, uh, and I, I like it a lot. And so if you're a football fan, check it out. I am not a football fan and I found it interesting. So, uh, something to, to look into. So head on over to battleshipretention.com for that.